tents open in the morning at the Furnace Creek Campground in Death Valley National Park, California. We're here because it's the 50th annual meeting of the Desert Fishes Council. In this month's episode of the Making Waves podcast, we'll talk to some of the people who are here at the meeting about why they care about desert fish conservation and what they see as the future of desert fishes. Welcome to Making Waves. Welcome to Making Waves. Fresh ideas and freshwater science. Fresh ideas and freshwater science, and, and why, why they, they matter, matter to, you. to you. Making waves. Making waves is brought to you. Making waves is brought to you with support from, from the, the Society, Society for, for Freshwater, freshwater science. science. This is Eric Moody, and joining me this month is Susan Washko. It's great to be here with you, Eric. We'll talk to several people in this episode who are here at the Desert Fishes Council meeting about why they care about desert fish and why they think more people should as well. During the lunch break, while attendees and ravens were equally fighting over their lunches outside of the meeting, we sat down with the president of the Desert Fishes Council, Chrissy Wilson, to talk about the mission of this organization. The mission of the Desert Fishes Council is to bring together a diverse array of folks that can have impacts on the habitats and the species that occur within those aquatic habitats. So being the Desert Fishes Council, we're very concerned about desert fishes. They seem to be overlooked quite a bit. So this council, that's basically our focus, is what can we do to improve those habitats and protect those habitats and for those species that occur within those those aquatic habitats. The other part of our mission is that we get together on an annual basis to share information, share our research, so that we, across the 11 states that are included within the Desert Fishes Council, we can assist each other by learning from other researchers what has worked, what hasn't worked, and it's a cooperative effort between all of us. This is the 50th anniversary meeting of the Desert Fishes Council, so would you be able to speak to like what are the biggest accomplishments in those 50 years? or? So there are 11 states that are contained within the Desert Fishes Council geographic scope. So it's mostly in the west, obviously in the desert. There are about 600 different species of fish, native fishes, that are that occur within these 11 states. To, to date, probably 35% of them are listed species. Probably 75% of those are imperiled species. And so to date, we, well, I know we've only had one species that has been delisted. Mm. We've had a couple that are in the process of being downlisted, but it seems like it's um, very, very difficult to make any progress with downlisting and delisting. And if you think about what the threats are to these species, so many times the habitats have been so severely altered that to try to get back to restoring the habitat, getting rid of the non-natives, it's a very long process. And that grows exponentially in time when you look at bigger systems. So for example, think of like the Colorado River, the Green River, those are big river systems. So when you talk about degradation and habitats to those, those habitats, 50 years, at least 50 years, to get the habitat back and to get rid of the non-natives and to just have your native species, or at least non-natives that are not as um, impactive as, as some others. So it's a long, hard process. Mm-hmm. So it's, it seems very discouraging, but the, prof- the, the things that we are making headway are is acquiring water. You know, that water is habitat for fish, so you have to have water. So many of our states have now passed regulations and laws that allow the agencies to own water, which you can then 
you use to restore your habitats. Uh, conservation easements are a big tool that we use and that protects the habitat and it comes where you're still in private ownership, it's now protected under a, a cooperative easement. So given those challenges, where would you like Desert Fishes Council to be in the next 50 years? Well, it would be great if we don't have any more species listed. But I think the best thing we could do is to address those that have been listed and, and you know, focus on those habitats. That's our biggest, biggest issue is protecting that habitat, acquiring water, make sure you have water, try to get your system back to a natural hydrologic regime. Those are all big, big challenges. If you look around the room at the folks that we had here for the meeting, we had got some of the brightest, sharpest people and dedicated people. We have people that do a lot of, this becomes their life. They, they go out and do this work on their free time. So it's not just a job that they're getting paid for. They're, people are very passionate about conservation of native fishes. You know, one of the things I would really like to see happen, and there was a couple of talks here that talked about it today, and it's basically how do you talk to the public and have the public appreciate native fishes the way we do? Mm -hmm. You know, so, ma so many of folks in the, in the public, the fish that they like are like the aquarium type species. They, they don't they want something bright and flashy. So we've got to somehow get over that hurdle of getting them to value these native fishes the same as we do. Now I have one little one thing that, you know, I just retired from the Division of Wildlife Resources in Utah. And one of the things I was really pushing that hopefully will continue to move forward is Colorado pike minnow is listed endangered. It's one of the largest, well, it's the largest minnow in North America. It got up to five feet mm -hmm. in length, which is astronomical if you think about that in a desert system they they're listed endangered but at one time it used to be a sport fish mm -hmm. and so that's what I've been trying to push is what we were hoping to do within Utah was we identified one reservoir that where we were going to put Colorado pike minnow and allow the public to fish for them mm -hmm. and so we're hoping that we can create this destination where people want to go here and catch this big huge native minnow and get the public on board with what a great fish this is and to me the whole focus should be legacy mm -hmm. this is something that you know I'm from Utah I was born and raised in Utah and I love Utah and I would love to see all of our native fishes recovered and the pike minnow I mean how cool would that be to have it to the point where it is in the river and there's so many of them it's now a sport fish mm -hmm. probably never be something that they harvest but catch and release and it is it, it is definitely a sport fish, and so we need to find those types of methods to get mm -hmm. the public involved in and love these fish the same way we do. So maybe you answer this question, but what is your favorite desert fish, and what would you want people to know about it to help them understand well, why it's so cool? <laughs> you know, when I worked in Utah, I was over all of the native fishes, and so we have 32 fish in the state of Utah, one's extinct, and all of them are so unique and have such amazing life history strategies but I would have to say it's probably the, the Colorado pike minnow yeah mm -hmm. if you think about a five-foot fish no teeth yeah. <laughs> it's a minnow yeah. and when people say oh it's not a minnow it is it is a minnow it's the largest minnow in North America I think that one is just extremely fascinating my other favorite one is June sucker June sucker occurs only in Utah Lake it's only the one location with the, you know that is endemic to Utah Lake at one time, it used to be some of the early culp. When he was there in the 1800s, he said, this is the greatest sucker pond in the universe because there were so many June suckers in there. Mm. So we've been working to recover the June sucker. It's, again, the same thing. It's a, it's a, 
a lake species, and there's only three other species that are lake species similar to this one. And one is the the Kiwi that's at Pyramid Lake, and then there's the one in the Klamath, the Klamath drainage. So those are the only three lake species, and June suckers being the other one. Um, so they're not like a sucker. So they're not on the rocks and on the bottom sucking. They're midwater plantivores. So it's just they're so interesting, and they live 40, 50 years, and they're they're a pretty cool fish too. So. The history of Desert Fishes Council is so interesting. I'm really excited to see what happens in the next 50 years. On the final night of the meeting, over a campfire as dinner was being prepared, we talked to a few other newer members of the Desert Fishes Council uh, to gather their thoughts on what they see as the future of Desert Fishes at the 100-year anniversary meeting of this organization. I'm Melody Faden, and I'm here at the 50th anniversary Desert Fishes Council meeting. So what I think about the future of desert fish really depends on how human attitudes change in the future. I kind of feel like we're at a tipping point where we either have to choose the environment or choose to ruin the environment. And I like that. I think it could go either way. I think if we choose that the environment and ecosystems and species are really valuable, we're, we could preserve these species, but we could also choose not to. Like, climate change could ruin everything, and we could choose not to try to fix that. And we could choose to let people use water rights however they want. And so those species could go extinct. So I guess I think it could go either way at this point for desert fishes. Hi, I'm Christy Cruz. After attending the 50th Desert Fishes Council meeting, I am walking away with a little bit of optimism about the future of desert fishes. So some of the presentations today suggested, or over the course of this program, suggested some alternative ideas for um, maintaining desert fishes as part of our desert landscape. So one suggestion was using wastewater systems, which is a source of water. Not necessarily ideal, but desert fish are well adapted for handling extremes, so there's some potential there. Another idea was alternative eradication methods using sex chromosome altered fish. So that is an idea. And then um, the addressing the human dimension component. There was a talk about the effectiveness of videos in changing people's attitudes towards the natural world, and so there's some potential there, as well as emphasizing that education is an important component, and it seems realistic to have grassroots community-supported native fish conservation, not just the management doing the work, but the community saying that we want this work to be done. And so I feel optimism that some things could change. Hello, my name is Hannah Moore. I want to say I have an optimistic outlook for desert fishes. Uh, I'm really passionate about them, so I hope that they'll end up being okay. But I think that it's a lot of the human dimension that needs to be taken into consideration, and I think that that oftentimes isn't. Instead, a lot oftentimes managers are focused on these, you know, species-specific questions where they're only trying to save a species that's already kind of on the brink of extinction without taking into consideration everything else that's going on. So how do we gain like public interest in these species? How do we make people want to like get behind them and to root for these species? And the only way that we really can end up saving all of them is by changing the human perspective of, you know, desert ecosystems and even just science in general. So I hope things work out. I will be devastated if they don't, but <laughs> really rooting for you guys, but I think it's hard and that there's just a lot of 
a lot of minds that need to be changed and that it's our job as scientists to work on changing those minds and educating the public on that. And finally, we heard from Dave Lytle as he made his way over from tending the carne asada on the fire to our table about what he thinks is the future of desert fishes. The future is the entire ecosystem, not just the fishes themselves. Woo! Preach! We love it. Ecosystem level science! Where's this going? My favorite part of the meeting was when founding member Phil Pister was giving his presentation on projector slides, old school style, and showed a slide of the article about the Supreme Court ruling in favor of the pupfish and preserving Devil's Hole. Phil teared up at the memory of that success and brought everyone in the room to tears with him. Although the work of desert fish conservation is extremely difficult, the fact that we've been successful in the past bolsters us for the obstacles of the future. It was a really meaningful moment for the 50th anniversary of Desert Fishes Council. Let's return to Chrissy Wilson, the president of the Desert Fishes Council, and hear why she thinks that everyone should love desert fishes, whether it's for the fish themselves or, as Dave suggested, because we should really care about these whole ecosystems. <laughs> the benefit of, of protecting the fish is restoring the habitat, which is a benefit to everybody. So I think everybody loves a nice, healthy riparian corridor and, a, and water in the river for recreation, whether it be fishing or whatever. Everybody loves a healthy riparian corridor and a river. That's how we need to find a way to tie people into help us with these fish, and this is what you get in return besides the fish. Mm-hmm. You get this healthy corridor. So we have to keep looking for those social opportunities to get people on board with why and how and how do we get them involved. Great. Well, thanks so much. You're yeah, thank you. You've been listening to the Making Waves podcast. For more info, for more info, for more info, please visit us online at the Society for Freshwater Science webpage. Tune, Tune in, in next time, time for another fresh idea in freshwater science.